Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, our continued coverage of the Chauvin murder trial of George Floyd. Black pain has been on full display on the stand. How has the trauma and grief of reliving George Floyd's death affected the witnesses and the rest of Black America? We're joined by MSNBC correspondent and host of Into America podcast, Tremaine Lee, and attorney and legal analyst Monique Presley. Donald Williams, the MMA fighter, uh, he broke down after hearing his 911 call, uh, where he was essentially calling the police on the police. Uh, there have been so many people who've taken the stand who've expressed guilt that they were not able to do more to help George Floyd. Uh, we've seen this kind of from person after person after person. As we go through this process in search of justice, are we re-traumatizing the witnesses? Are we re-traumatizing all of Black America? And can you speak to that idea of trauma? We've seen so obviously how difficult it has been for so many of these witnesses to talk about what happened that day. You know, Wes, I think, I think what we've seen and I think what has been so painful is when you think back to the days of the public lynchings and the, the, the killing was so public and it was so celebratory and we can hear the soundtrack of strange fruit and these black bodies hanging and you see the smiling faces and, and the wounds uh, made even deeper because of the public nature of it. And it's not enough just to have been killed in public, but then for each of these witnesses to have to relive it and each of us to have to relive it. And so when we ponder on ideas of justice, I'm not sure we understand what justice actually is because we've never experienced it in this country. Black people have never gotten justice. We don't have full agency as human as American citizens to really be able to um, you know get our hands around it like that but I think that the trauma um, you know being replicated over and again it's, and black pain is so ordinary that it's almost extraordinary when we get to see this display because it's so routine um, and I, I think about and it's been said you know all day but the 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 minor witnesses, who were too young to show their faces, but they weren't too young to witness the killing of a man and watch this man take his last breaths. Um, I think it, it's, you know, no terrible pun intended, breathtaking, right? Um, but again, certainly we're re-traumatizing ourselves. Certainly I even had to step away for a while because this one in particular mm -hmm. has been just so tough to watch that, that el the elder in the community break down in tears. And, and for, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the brother who was the MMA fighter, um, to be calling out and crying out and pleading, pleading, take his pulse back up, right? I mean, it was just, it's, it's been, you know, it feels like a wound that keeps being stretched, certainly. And I'm not sure if that answers your question, man, but it's, it's, this is as bad as, as anybody I've ever seen. One of the things that's been so striking to me, and I, I recognize that I'm saying this to a group of black men, is seeing the pain of black men because you know, it's, it has not been lost on me that the, the, the requirement of strength takes a toll on black men because you have to be strong. You have to be strong to live in this society. You have to be strong to be a black man in America. And so we so rarely see these expressions of black male suffering. I haven't even seen it in my own home. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen my husband cry and I would still have fingers left over. 
So to see Mr. Williams crying, this is an MMA fighter. This is a young black man. This is a strong black man. And I mean, physically strong, trained to be physically strong. To see him cry when he heard the 911 call that he made to police reporting a murder by police, what he believed to be a murder by police, really struck a chord with me because we don't get to see black men being vulnerable that often. And to see then again, this elder, as Tremaine put it, cry on the stand, weeping on the stand, you feel the, the pain that black men carry with them all the time, but rarely get to show. And that is traumatizing and it's heartbreaking. And as a black woman, I, you know, black women want to want to love and care for everybody. I mean, I don't know if that's, I don't know if it's genetic, I don't know if it's a stereotype, but I, you know, I feel like mother to the world. And um, it's just really painful and it is re-traumatizing because I also feel that same way about George Floyd. And that's what we're hearing from a lot of the people that have taken a stand is that they felt that way towards George Floyd. They wanted to protect him. They wanted to help him. They were pleading for his humanity to be recognized. They were pleading for compassion and mercy, but the officers who were inflicting this pain didn't see any of that. No, see, when you think back to um, France Fanon, right? And he talked about the colonized, because they can't lash out at the oppressor, they lash out to those closest to them. And so I think when we think about black male pain in particular, we so often see it manifested in our brothers and our neighbors and those in proximity right? Not being able to handle the interactions and all the, the stuff that happens. And we're wound up and coiled up and we lash out. But rarely do we see um, the, that kind of, as you, as you call it, this vulnerability. And the hurt is so deep and it's so common. And you have to do your best to shoulder up every single day when there's a target on your back from every single direction. Not just the actual violence of police brutality, not just because of the actual violence of community, but the, all the abstract forms of violence and the pressure and not having the tools to respond to a system that was always engineered and geared against you. And to see that in this way and to see that brother, I'm trying to be so composed. When they're pushing him, you were getting angry, weren't you? First of all, I'm saying, yeah, we we're angry. But he said, I didn't get out of my body. You can't paint me to be that because we know what happens is, what the defense is trying to do in front of that jury is to say, what, what's reasonable here? You have a, a group of angry, a mob, of angry black angry people. black people angry mm -hmm. black people not just angry mm -hmm. people angry so what's reasonable here what would you do if you were confronted by you were angry weren't you and there and you called him names you called him a bitch didn't you you kept pushing and pushing you were angry and he said no 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 you're not going to do that to me um but the the pressure and the stress as we know walking around every single day walking into our workplaces walking into communities right always knowing that there are forces against us that never wanted us not just to thrive they never wanted us to survive so we talk about this this concept of um traumatization and it struck me as as i was watching working on it working on a piece about about this and it's kind of hard to grab the words but as i watched the testimony over the last two days what we saw was stages of life in which Black men are traumatized from childhood all the way through late adulthood. Mm -hmm. you, you, you saw Black men literally from children all the way up to a 61-year-old man. And I thought that in, in talking about the trauma of witnessing what happens all too often when when black man encounter police. I thought that the 
testimony today, Mr. McMillan's testimony this afternoon brought that home in a particular way. And, and that way is this, what he, what he described when he, was, when he was being questioned by prosecutors on, on the stand was the talk. We're all familiar with, the, with this concept of, of the talk. Those of us who, who have children have given this talk to our, to our children, especially if those children are black men. And certainly all three of the black men, men here, maybe you too, Mara, I don't know, but, it's, but certainly I know Tremaine got that talk. I know I got that talk and I, and I certainly know Wes has, has gotten that talk. And what the, what the talk is, is essentially to say that it's advice minimizes what it really is. The talk is akin to, it, it stops just short of, of, a, of a religious tenet, but it is certainly uh, a proverb or a, a collection of proverbs for black men in terms of how we have to go about our lives this is a this is a must. This is the kind of wisdom that you're going to need. That you're going to have to reach in your pocket. You're going to have to go in your toolbox, and you're going to need this at some point in, in time. And it's going to serve you. And it may be life or death. Mm. And it's about keeping your hands on the steering wheel if you ever get pulled over. It's about not making any sudden sudden moves if 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 a police officer you know approaches you. It's about not appearing to. It's about keeping your your, your keys and your, I was always told, keep your keys, your wallet, your cell, your cell phone visible when you're in the car. Always, yeah, always well, do that. I always, right? always so keep it in the, in the center console. In the center, in the center console. So that, so that it's visible if you ever have to reach for it, asking for permission when they ask you for your, for your driver's license and your registration, do I have permission to take my hands off the steering wheel to get my driver's license, which is right there in the center console intentionally so that you can see where my, where my hands are. We saw on that video today, we saw Mr. McMillan stand there and give this talk to George Floyd as George Floyd was in the process of being killed. Hmm. Usually this is a talk that you get when you're, when you're in the household. Usually this is a thing that you, that you say, and, and you know, 61 years old, he's, he's an OG, right? He, he's like, this is the guy that you go to. I'm certain that he's given that same talk to his nephews, to his kids, if he, had, if he has any to some of the younger guys in the neighborhood, et cetera. He even said, as he goes about the neighborhood, if he encounters police officers, that he tells those police officers, hey man, just remember, we wanna go home just like you do. We want you to be able to go home safe and we wanna go home, home safe. So this is a guy that has the wisdom of ages, right? And he comes on this scene where he sees a brother being stopped by police. He makes it his business to go to this man and say, hey, just comply. Just do what they tell you to do. Just get in the car. You can't, you can't win. George Floyd replies, I'm not trying to win. You can't win. Just do what they just do what they tell you. And the heartbreaking part about it is you see this life's wisdom come falling down all around him while he's on the stand. Because this is what black men like us have been told since almost the day we were born. That if you that if you just comply somehow you you sh you should be able to figure out a way to make it out of these altercations and after 61 years of life as he tried to give George Floyd probably the last piece of wisdom and advice he ever received from an older black man in, in his life they killed him anyway. Mm. But what's so devastating yeah, you know, to me with that Keith and, is that is that the the talk and the talk that that gentleman had with George Floyd in the last moments of his life, it's all focused on the victim right. trying the, to survive. That's, but that's the absurdity of it. And that's, that's why the talk to me, I've always hated the idea of the talk because it p positions us in this position of fear. 
right? When in reality, we should be fearing everything around us. The violence inflicted upon us by, at every turn, especially by the state, yet we are the ones to bear the burden of everyone else's fear. Meanwhile, it's like the bear being, should, he had right to be afraid of the hunter. But the hunter is saying, ah, oh, there's some dangerous bears out here. They're the ones doing the shooting and killing. And this idea that here this man is and, and with the talk, and once again, it failed us because it's not about what we do. It's not about our actions. We know that mm -hmm. because whether you're in a suit marching with your hands on your books and you're singing your songs or whether you're complying, that's not the point. It's the public infliction of that violence to reinforce the status. And we understand that's what, and the, the most acceptable form of racism in America is anti-blackness and we know it. And that's why we still have to hem and haul when we see it clear as day, right? We can parse through the law, we can parse through the policy, we can parse through the language, but it's plain as day. Well, and as, as you guys both noted, I just think it's so important to stop for a moment. And, and here you have McMillan enter, 61-year-old black man, enters a scenario where he sees something going sideways. And he knows better than to try to reason with the police officers. He knows the mm. only recourse That's it. is to talk to the black man. <laughs> that, 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 and you... That, you know, he doesn't have any, the, the reality is George Floyd wasn't the issue here. We've seen the video, right? right? But right. but all McMillan could do was beg the dying black man, if you can hmm. comply just a little bit more, maybe this, maybe we can stop this. Maybe we can fix this. Maybe we can hope be better. He knew better than to, than, than to appeal as we saw other witnesses do to the police officers. And, if he, and, 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 that, and that's the point that I'm making about McMillan and, and his and his age and why that was and why him being 61 was so potent because you'll notice a generational difference and a racial difference and even a gender difference in how everyone else on the scene responded. The OG black guy mm -hmm. who showed up, the 61 year old man, the one who the one who's lived the longest and, and seen the most and has been through this. He said on the stand, I've been I've I've been involved with the police before. He's probably you know I've I've I've, I've dealt with this before. He was the only one. Everyone else showed up and tried to and tried to challenge the police. Everyone else showed up and tried to reason with the police. Everyone else tried showed up and tried to beg the officers to, you know, that the EMT who testified tried to tried to beg them to, to a believe her credentials and they wouldn't, and b to at least let me coach you through what you need to do. And and those didn't work. He was the only one who came who got to the scene and said, "Hey man, let me let me try to help you." And what that all right? presents is a picture. Go ahead, Mara. Well, you raised such an interesting point about it being generational because of all the witnesses we've heard from, this is the only one who was older than George Floyd. And so he was speaking to him as nephew, just yes. comply. Yeah. He understands the inheritance, right? And we passed it down from generation to generation. We started this conversation with this idea and notion of trauma which has been innate, right? And it's passed down from generation to generation and they come with the rules and they come with the hope beyond hope and they come with all of the regulations of moving through these spaces as a black man, especially, but as a black person more generally. And he knew better than most because he's seen this thing passed down and passed down and passed down. And sadly, it's a tragic lesson that those minors had to witness. What happens? right, every single day in this country. And that's one of the biggest tragedies that we're gonna see this one killing ricochet in different ways. And we're gonna see it manifest. And we see it manifest every single day. And that's the sad part, that this is another example, again, of passing it down to the next generation. And it's terribly sad for obvious reasons. Here's where for me, I wanna, I wanna shift a little bit 
and and talk about the other side of that coin that that the idea that you couldn't appeal to the police and one of the themes that we've heard heard from the prosecution witnesses in the in the three days of testimony so far has been that everybody there like so many people decided that it was time to call the police on the police even people who were who wore uniforms so showed up and said that like it's time to call the dispatcher who works for the police department said called the sergeant the emt who works for the fire department who go who's who's with the police all the time the you know the the the, the mma train brother who does security with cops all the time they all said something was so wrong that we needed to call the police on on the police and the question that i wanted to wanted to get to where what this presents is the the conundrum of what do you do in that situation? The answer may be, may be nothing, but what do you do and where is the line? Is there, is there a legal point at which the public or members of the public have either, have either the right or the responsibility to protect someone who's in danger of losing their life because of police misconduct, right? But here's That's what's a, so I, I believe about this case, Keith, is that everybody who saw it did exactly what they were supposed to do. They complied with the other officers' um, guidelines to stay on the sidewalk. They didn't even step off the sidewalk. They implored so, with the police to recognize George Floyd's humanity. They asked for a pulse, which is the most basic measure of whether or not someone is being critically injured. They did everything right. And so at what point, happened. So at, so at what point, at what point is use of force acceptable in defense of life when the police are the ones threatening Never. life? The biggest jail. question, though, I think the biggest issue with your, with your question, Keith, which makes complete sense, is that we don't have the, the, the proper tools. We don't have the proper tools. If your only tool is, is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We're calling the police, the men and women with the guns, to respond to their own violence. And that's the problem. I think that's what the push has been to reimagine what policing could look like and how certain communities are policed. So at what point can you defend yourself? We know the answer to that. They will murder you in the street and be legally justified. Well, and that's and I think that's what's so remarkable. It's become almost cliche throughout this trial because it's been said so many times. Right. But I, but I do think people should sit with this idea of what it means when you call the police on the police, right? Like at what point of hopelessness you've, you've arrived. The end, where, the end. Where the, the, where the people, end. Where the people who are supposed to be here to protect and serve are killing someone in you in front of you and you pick up the phone and dial 911 and say, hey, there's some cops here killing someone. I need different and cops to, be, to come. And to be clear, no other officers responded. That was, that's, that's the other thing. The first other the, the first sirens that you hear, or the first the first emergency vehicle that you see show up is when the ambulance comes. And at that point, it's too late. But we know that a supervisor we've heard the call to a supervisor supervisor never shows up. No one in the chain of, in the chain of command above Derek Chauvin shows up. No one no one else in the police department shows up on on scene in, in, in that in, in that entire time. So there was. Go ahead. No, I don't see it as a key. You know, Wesley said, what kind of, what level of hopelessness is that? Hopelessness is that. And I was actually getting shades of uh, Officer Goodman, who we saw at the Capitol, who took a stand to protect democracy and protect the system. When you were calling the police on the police, that still reflects a belief in the system. 
And that is what we are seeing from black people over and over and over again through our civic engagement. We just want the system to live up to its ideals. And I don't think it's a coincidence that almost everybody we've seen on the stand so far is black and they did exactly what they were supposed to do. They were playing by the rules. They were trusting in the system, but it was the system that failed. So calling the police I, I, on the police is actually an act of faith in the system. I, I, I don't think in this instance that it was an act of faith. I think it reflects back to what, to what I was saying and to be, and to be clear, because I know somebody will, will take this and, and run with it. My question wasn't aimed at being provocative and saying, and saying that at any time, like use of force against police is, is acceptable. What I was saying is there comes a, there comes a point where there is such a lack of faith, right? You're, you're beyond that point when you're actually watching the police kill someone in bad, in bad faith, not in self-defense and, and not for any reason. And so that, the point that I, was, that I was making there goes to your question, Mara. I don't think that they were calling the police on the police because they had faith in the system that the system would do right. I think it was quite the opposite. I think the, I, I, I think, if I had to guess, most people, and especially and especially the men present, had a, had a different instinct and a different thought about how they wanted to respond, but they knew how it would end. They, they had I'm no sure, choice. I'm, they they had they had no choice, and so they and so they had to take whatever action that they could take that didn't involve them losing their life and or freedom in that moment. I don't think that anybody standing there had faith in had faith in the system at all. I think they were all desperate for mm. some resolution, for something, for anything. Maybe if I call 911, they're probably not going to get up off this brother, but maybe if I call 911, a supervisor will get here quick enough and say, hey man, get up off him and just take him down to the station or something like that. But I don't think that that was a reflection of, of faith in the system or some sort of uh, you know, blind... Uh, o o obedience or whatever the, the, the case is. I, I don't think anybody present believed that they were calling the police because the police would somehow show up and rectify and, and protect them. It was simply out of desperation. We have to do something because this man is dying. There's, there's, so, many, there's so many moments in, in all of this that seem like we're in some sort of bizarre world, but this is actual real life. When the defense attorney was questioning uh, Geneva, uh, Geneva, whatever her name is, the firefighter, the, the woman, mm -hmm. and he says, were, were you getting upset? And she's like, they were killing someone. They were killing someone. <laughs> Have you ever seen someone killed? Taking their last <laughs> breath, and it's this idea that people are just supposed to take it in, in a, as a matter of course. And I think we have, we have to remind ourselves that the paradigm here is so off balance and has been for so long that it's all kind of absurd, right? And it's so routine. And Wesley, you've done a lot of reporting, obviously, about the protections given to the state to you employ violence against us, again, as a matter of course. Right, it functions for that purpose almost. That it, it's it's such a, a, an innate part of who we are as this country that the, the level of, of violence is acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. To to Tremaine, thanks so much for being with us. You know, and just to to tie this all together, you know, we started by talking with Charles about Charles McBill and about the older black man who was there, and, and now we've talked about so many of the other black men who were there, the decisions they were making, and uh, you know, I think of the Dave Chappelle line almost, where you know, if you find an old black person, they're basically a certified paralegal, right? That <laughs> every one, every person on that scene knew exactly where the line was. 
themselves. They knew exactly what they can do and what they couldn't do. And that rendered them relatively hopeless. They appealed to the officer. They appealed to techniques. No, 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 you're, he's losing it. You're on his neck. He can't breathe. Can you check his pulse? They're, they're appealing to medical. They're calling the police because they know a police officer is the only one who's going to be able to stop them. And yet, uh, and again, like I said, I think that does reflect a, a helplessness, a desperation, but also the burden of an expertise that every one of those Black people on the scene knew exactly the line they could push to, to not imperil their own lives. Mm. And it wasn't enough to save George Floyd's. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons we so, see so many of them breaking, breaking down on the stand, being so upset and emotional. And so Tremaine, thanks so much for being here and helping us break this down and, and bringing your expertise here with us as well. And always great talking with you. And hopefully we never have to talk about this stuff again, but unfortunately I think we know that we will be. We will. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me. I really do appreciate uh, you guys have, have definitely, um, you know, raised the bar and I appreciate y'all for, for including me. Thank you. Well, you know, your family, we hope you'll come back. That's an official invitation. Without question. <laughs> we'll start scheduling it now. I'm just very appreciative. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Tremaine. All right, y'all. Peace. Bye. Um, so Tremaine, if you could drop off. Yeah. I, I still don't know how to disconnect people. <laughs> Thank you. Peace, y'all. Thank you all for it. This is great. Thank you. Thanks to Gabby and Nola. All right, y'all, peace. Okay, so Monique, if you could turn on your camera. Um, and Keith, are you comfortable with the intro? Yeah, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so whenever you're ready, Monique, thank you. Um, that was a great conversation, you guys. Great conversation, guys. Hi, Leslie. How are you? I'm, I'm as good as a Black person can be on a day like today. Right, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. precisely how about that all right i'm ready to go whenever y'all are okay yeah we're still rolling all right three two so as we continue our conversation i want to welcome in attorney and, an and legal analyst monique presley monique you've been watching this trial you've been paying attention to it just as closely as all of us what are the main points that you've seen the prosecution make over the last couple of days and how effective do you think they've been at presenting their case? The prosecution, first of all, thank you all for, for having me. I have just the greatest amount of respect for each of you individually and what you're doing uh, collectively in order to bring candid conversations to our community. And I have been watching, I've been watching closely. And, and the first thing that, that I would say uh, as someone who for 11 years of my life as a, a senior assistant attorney general represented a municipality, which included representing police departments. So commissioner, then chief Ramsey, who you see, you know, on another network every day was my client. Um, mm. And, and so I know um, some inner workings and the good, the bad, the ugly of it. I know the cases that if they came across my desk, I would have, cause I was in the civil part, I would have been settling immediately and sending letters up the chain saying straight to mayor, no stop. Um, and, and then I know what it's like to sit in a courtroom and be defending an officer who's accused of shooting an unarmed man in the back. Uh, I know what the law says, what it should say. I know what it is to be on the other side of it and be suing police departments for the same thing. So my emotions have been wacky, wackadoo, whack-a-mole right now. Um, and I found myself praying because uh, it, 
alike, like times when I was in trial myself, like when I was looking at Mr. McMillan today, I help him Holy Ghost was what I tweeted. And that was all I could think of to tweet because when you have a witness that disassembles on the stand like that, because the pain of it, no matter how much you've prepared is so um, overwhelming and, and so defeating because that's what it was. It wasn't just that he was sad. It was, I couldn't get it done. I set my sights on saving my brother and I could not in and of myself make it happen. And looking at where this is, you know, where, where, where this happened and where I had to watch that was too much for him. Um, but while I say that it was highly effective for a prosecutor, do I sound callous? I hate to be that way, but the <laughs> prosecution is rolling out a, an effective, organized, strategic, and almost flawless case at this point. Mm. Uh, there are things that they did. And, you know, on the first day on, on opening statements, people like, where's the enthusiasm? Where's the passion? Where's it? Well, you know, it's not Matlock right? Um, it's, it's, it's not any of those, those shows I used to watch when I was dying to be a lawyer and I was staying up past bedtime. This is real life and this is Minnesota and you've got prosecutors who know their citizens and know their jury. So, and so, so, that's, so Monique, to, to that end, um, I want to ask you about something specific and, and hearing you say that they're delivering an almost flawless case is very affirming. Because yeah. as a lay person watching it, this seems like a slam dunk. However, at the same time, you're always aware that it only takes one person on a jury who will not convict a police officer, who has that uh, commitment to the system. They have that confidence in the system that they will not convict a police officer. We saw it with Walter Scott. There was one holdout on the jury who simply said the case has been proven, but I will not convict, convict a police officer. What we saw recently was a juror had to take a break because their stomach was hurting them. And the judge later said, well, that was a stress-induced response. That to me feels profound. Am I reading too far into that? What should we read into that? We should read as much into it as goes with one juror because the juror next to that juror might not be feeling anything at all. And, and today, while we were all doubled over, I mean, at one point, I, I literally thought I'm going to puke. And I had a dental appointment and I was listening in my ear and I was thinking, is it the fact that they are fooling around in my mouth or is it what I'm hearing in my ear? Overall, I'm sick. OK, um, because it couldn't just be we don't want to want to uh, convict a police officer. It could be black people and black bodies are less human than white bodies. It could be going along with what we heard uh, in the last discussion about the talk. It could be, well, if he had just put himself in the car, it could be this officer who was way at the front of all the people who were applying death pressure onto him, didn't know what was happening because of these angry black people mm. who were distracting them. It could be any of the excuses that go along with this really, I mean, it's like a Lollapalooza of racism, sexism, um, classism, right? Because we're seeing these communities come together. And what I love about this trial 
uh, if there's something to love is that the white woman who was the firefighter saw the same thing as the black man who was the expert martial, martial artist saw the same thing as the nine-year-old girl who, who saw the same thing as the 17-year-old who really saved all of us by having the, the wherewithal to film it. And the dispatcher who was seeing it on camera saw the same thing. And that's why I said the prosecution is ingenious because all of these people testified and then late in the day today, they show us this body cam video that they had all the time and look at everybody playing their parts. It's like if you segregated a theatrical production and this one did their lines and this one did their lines and this one did their lines. And then you have one scene where you see everybody and you're like, oh my God, not only were the witnesses consistent, not only were the way they was the way they recalled it accurate, but look at how all of them combined for love of humanity to save this man. While we had police officers who, listen, the fact that they, they got rid of first degree murder is my only issue with the prosecution right now, because these facts are so damning. They are so mm-hmm. damning, um, but I, and, and I know I'm running long, but I say that. And then on the flip side, I say, I know how hard it is to, to um, convict a, pros- a, a police officer. And that's the real reason why the prosecutors don't want to bring the cases. They hate losing. They hate running up numbers where they're losing cases. They're only supposed to bring cases that they think they can win. And they, they factor win. in mm. the law. They mm-hmm. factor in how this jury is going to be obstructed about reasonableness in the eyes of the police officer. Yes. And so when you're talking to this, how many white women are on this jury? Not even worth talking about. But when you're talking to this one white woman who you think you can turn and you're saying we were scared of the big black man and we were scared and distracted by the angry mob. Did you see yesterday when the defense counsel was saying, and then they were <gasps> clutches his pearls, cussing. Right. And and here and here comes uh, Genevieve saying, uh, yeah, because if you witness someone being killed, somebody it's killed, upsetting. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's upsetting. And they and they hit that point time again in the opening statements, and they were calling them names. They were saying these this 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 idea of the fear, right? That as we noted, well, were you getting angry? Did you call them a bitch? Did you? Right, like to again to build this narrative, and I think that's one thing that is important, right? We do have to remember the trials have two sides to them. Yes. We're deep in the heart of the prosecution's case. Yes. Now, it, I think it's clear objectively the prosecution is performing a very strong case. They have they have very strong witnesses. They have very strong objective facts. Yeah. They, you know that that has always been true. Here. However, there's going to be a defense. There's going to be a well-compensated defense that is going to make that is that is going to make arguments here, and and one of my questions is what I wonder is, and you were just getting to this, Monique, is about you know what we can expect from them, strategically, legally, how they attempt to counter this. Uh, again, there's no question, Officer Chauvin killed George Floyd, that he had his knee on his neck, but I'm wondering about the potential. Can they get to reasonable doubt on the health questions, the drug questions? You know, was this, you know, they like to use excited, excited delir- delirium, the thing they use when they tase you, and they say it wasn't really the taser, it was the fact that your heart was bad, right? Is there one person on that jury, when you look at the jury 
the way it's constituted, but then also the prosecution case they're going to be responding to. Do you think there are weak points that the defense is going to be able to, to try to, again, they only got to get one? Well, uh, um, at whatever point the defense starts their case, George Floyd will turn into the defendant, right? Um, um, all the way from glory. He's, he's going to be in a defense chair and they're going to start a brand new trial. And that brand new trial is going to be about fentanyl. That brand new trial is going to be about counterfeit money. That brand new trial is going to be about resisting arrest. That brand new trial is going to be about prior bad acts and misconduct. We're going to hear all these things about the man who was murdered. That's the way their case is going to go. Whether it is effective or not is going to depend, in my opinion, on the prosecution's ability to do what I call bait and switch, uh, because the law is going to win the day with this jury. They are emotional, but they're going to be instructed to abandon their emotions and to decide on facts and reason and assessment of witnesses and law. So when they're getting those instructions, I think that what um, your, your last guest said about the talk is very important. Because as Tremaine said, you know, we all get the talk. Well, the talk is ineffectual. We know that now. The talk doesn't work. You can be given the talk and you can end up running away and shot in the back. This, these are the things that happen. The talk does not work. But if I was prosecuting this case, I would say to the jury, you're thinking if he hadn't resisted, he'd still be alive the talk, right? That if he had listened to Mr. McMillan, his elder, he'd still be alive. You know what? You're right. If he had listened to Mr. McMillan and if he had not resisted, he probably would still be alive. Do you know why? Because it's a knee on his neck that killed him. It's knees on his body that killed him. So, okay, we lost you for a second. Am, sorry. Am, am I back? Yeah, can you repeat, yeah, can you repeat that sentence? I'm sorry. So I'm saying the reason why that's going to, oh God, I don't know. I, I stopped all of my things from coming in and it's they're right. still you doing the it. I don't know how to get them to stop. The system, do, do, we have, do we have, do we have edit control? <laughs> we um, do have edit control. Don't worry. This is not live to tape. <laughs> so, so, and that's what they told me it was. Y'all scared me. Um. Mm. So they're gonna, I would say- That's to keep them, you on your toes. <laughs> I would say to them, you're thinking that if he had complied, he would be alive. You're thinking that if he had listened to Mr. McMillan, he would still be with us. And you want to give these police officers a break because in the beginning, it is obvious that he was resisting going into the car and resisting arrest. I take that, I hug it like it's a warm blanket, same as the constitution. And I say, you're exactly right. Because if he had done that, then the knee to the neck that killed him would never have happened. And that's murder. So I have the, two, the, two Monique, I have two follow-up questions to that end. One is the prosecution trying to get ahead of putting George Floyd on trial and making him the aggressor and the perpetrator and the unhinged drug addict by showing the surveillance video and putting the store clerk on the stand saying, yeah, he seemed high, but he was friendly. You know, he seemed like, you know, this harmless guy and the, the video shows that as well. And number two, do you think they'll put Chauvin on, on the stand, which is very unusual and very uncommon, but it feels like in the face of everything we've seen, 
it might be worth a gamble for the defense. So on the first one, yes, the tactic that the prosecution used, and I think they used effectively, is what we in the legal circles call pulling the sting. Back when I was um, trying cases before I transitioned into crisis manager land, we would do that often. So if you know that there's bad evidence, you want to tell your own story. And in our community, we say, you can't tell it, let me tell it, right? So before, (laughs) before the defense has an opportunity, we're going to go ahead and say, yep, it looked like he was under the influence of drugs because he was. Yep. It looked like he was having a little trouble with the sentences because he was. Yep. They're going to hear the testimony and, and, and get the evidence about what was in his system. Fine. Trace amounts, but still fine. He's in there stretching and, and thinking about his glory days in, in baseball. And that's kind of the way he went out. But they're also saying, and he was lucid, and he knew what kind of cigarettes he wanted, and he was having conversations. And we hear him having cogent conversations, one with Mr. McMillan, but then in, in with his mama, you know, I mean, he's still talking clear. Even when he knows he's heading into another plane, he's still having conversations. And he wasn't, they, we saw in the video that they entered when they put the MPD technician up there, um, that there was a full pat down. They pulled out, they pulled out his pockets. What weapon? No weapon. So you got a cuffed man, on the ground, prone, face in the concrete, and you know there are no weapons. And because he is kicking, which frankly wasn't going to hurt anybody more than it hurt him, because he was already cuffed, um, there's no justification. So we still end up back where we started. Yes, he may have still been alive if when he was having what we can see as a full-on anxiety attack, from claustrophobia, from fear of going back to prison, from fear of being shot, instead of using whatever training they were supposed to have had to do the one thing that training does tell them, take a time out, sit on this corner, let him wait until you have reinforcements. He's handcuffed. He wants to lay out on the ground, let him. You don't have to control what he does at that point. If you're telling him you're going to coax him into the car with windows down, put the windows down. They know how to do this when they're dealing with with arrestees or with suspects that are having what was clearly a medical slash emotional response to arrest. They're supposed to know how to do those things. And that's why the city of Minneapolis paid out the most money in the history of paying out money. To, to police misconduct victims because they had to. And when we see these videos, we know that that wasn't enough. It should have been, it should have been twice that amount, but well, I'm, I'm, I'm running will, on. Do you think Chauvin will take the stand? He better not. What he do you don't think that can help him? See, I would, um, at this point, I think they've probably been spending the last four, five, six months trying to figure out if this man is capable of emoting, capable of remorse, capable of apology, capable of breaking down on the stand, capable of showing some repentance, whether false or not, he isn't. I am very clear looking at that man who was resting easily while bystanders in community were saying he's bleeding out of his nose, show me a pulse. And then he's shimmying and leaning and pausing and not talking because he knew body cams were on. So everybody else, even in his little cluster of police officers, they're saying things. Is he saying anything? No, he's doing what he's doing. 
And then, and then when he does say something, it's, he's still breathing. And it, 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 it was a lie. If he's, if he's still talking, uh, then he's not having trouble breathing. That's a lie. Their training is supposed to teach them all of those things. And it's an utter failure at every step, but it's not just negligent. We see intent. So if we had to prove intent for first degree, we could. But what we see for sure is whether it was fentanyl, whether it was high blood pressure, whether it was heart disease, whether it was ever, whatever it was, they can't dismiss that a contributing and I would argue superseding cause of death was the restriction of his airflow and his blood supply and the pressure to other parts of his body and refusing to render aid, which is the first obligation, even under arrest, where there is no danger, even under arrest, the first obligation of police officers is protect and serve. So they were supposed to keep him alive. So we, so you talked a lot about, a lot about the training and, and the ways in which they haven't found, uh, they haven't followed the training, but there's a distance between what they're trained to do and police department policy and what the law says vis-a-vis vis- vis- an assault charge, charge or any is that any of the degrees are up, right? Can you walk us through what the difference is and, and where those two things intersect? Where is not following police protocol in that situation and not following your training also violating the law? Because you can you cannot follow police law and still be within the bounds of the law. And the law does give wide latitude to police officers, even when they don't follow protocol. And what you're saying here is, they didn't follow, and in particular, uh, Chauvin didn't follow police protocol. He didn't follow policy. Also cross that line, that very, very elastic line of breaking breaking the law and ending in someone's death. So can you walk us through that briefly? Yes, because here they mirror much more closely than they would in other circumstances. So if you think about like a, a Freddie Gray or, or one of the other cases that, that we've seen where they had information that there was some sort of threat and police were acting on the information they received and then either poorly assessed the scene or took unnecessary chances with the suspect who was in custody. And so they do something like leaving um, a, a suspect or an arrestee in the back of of the police car where where George Floyd was fighting for his life to not get in. And then they give him a rough ride, right? That's what we saw in the gray case. That is a break from training, but not necessarily mirroring a break in the law as an intentional assault or a homicide or a negligent homicide or a murder. Here, not so, because the break in training was also a direct assault. It was also what caused the killing. So they're they're sandwiched together where you're either gonna do what you're trained to do or you're going to cause serious injury, bodily harm or death to the person who you are detaining. And that is what Chauvin is responsible for um, in this instance. And, and, And actually, just from what you all said earlier, I just wanna drop this nugget. Minnesota has a citizen's arrest statute in full effect and updated as of 2020. So what could a person who was not a black person on the streets on Chicago Avenue that day been able to do, arrest anybody, even a police officer because a crime was committed while they watched? So So the law provides for them to not just call the police on the police, but to stop the police, to detain the police. What we know, though, is that 
it it, it would have been um, um, a mass murder. It so, wouldn't have been one man. So theoretically, Minnesota Karen could have citizens arrested Derek Chauvin <laughs> in real time. Right, and if she you, had been able to detain him, if she, if she had gone wild, yes. wild west, <laughs> right? if she had pulled out her taser, if she had, she all she had to do, I mean, literally, give me a rope, she could have taken him and presented him to the magistrate. They still allow for that in Minnesota, and it could have happened to a citizen, and citizens include police officers. So we know that that's not the real world for us, um, as black folks, and, and we watched that play out. I wanted to say just for as many young men they had today, there were young men yesterday, you know, so my whole in defense, young women yesterday, in defense of black women and girls, I, I, I was concerned that parents agreed for those young girls to be able to testify that the traumatization that took place for mm. a nine-year-old girl, for a 17 turned 18-year-old girl, for their names to be out there, for their voices to be out there, that they are covered and that the city is giving them the therapy that they need for as long as they need it because they're going to. And Monique, I had one quick follow-up question on, on Keith's question, which is, in this case, is it true that Chauvin is going to be held to a reasonable officer standard? Is, is that the, the, the wording of the law? Because you were noting how, in this case, according to the prosecution's case, right, that it is not just a breaking of policy, but that the action, the breaking, is independently a crime. He assaulted someone. He didn't just not follow a rule. But to my understanding, Right. Police officers under Supreme Court precedent are held to the reasonable officer standard. Would an objectively reasonable officer have taken these same steps? Would they have done these same things potentially? And, and I think that speaks to what we see the defense already laying the, leading uh, and laying the groundwork for, right? That it was hectic. There were all these angry people around. They were yelling. My impression, it seems like what they are going to try to argue, one, is that it might not have been the knee that killed him, it was other stuff. But two, that the scene was so hectic and the officer felt so scared that a, another reasonable officer put in the same scenario might have also been too distracted and too scared to realize they were killing George Floyd. It seems like that's gonna be the argument they make. That's, uh, so yes, first of all, that's gonna be the argument because right now as the law is, and y'all voting matters, vote these folks out so we can change the law. Um, it's going to be the case that for civil and for criminal cases, we're looking at a reasonable officer standard. Vice President Harris said when she was running and has said since she became vice president, it needs to change from reasonable to necessary because we see the difference between those two outcomes. But here's why they're going to lose on that if the prosecution does its job. We've got this video. We've got three other officers, one standing up, two further down in the body touching him, letting him go, shaking his leg, patting him, letting him go. Do they have full weight on him? Do they find it necessary? Do they find it reasonable to continue suppressing him for the full nine minutes and 29 seconds? No, they don't. So if you're questioning what a reasonable officer would do in the same or similar circumstance, all you got to do is look at the reasonable officers who were on the scene in the same or similar circumstance to know that what he was doing was not necessary, mm. was not reasonable, was not proportional, was not appropriate, and was not codified as legal. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that 
we've got what we need if the jurors do the right thing. Do you really quickly, do you think we're going to hear from these other officers on the stand? During this trial? Oh, absolutely not, because they haven't stood trial yet. That was the plan. Mm -hmm. and, and so they are not going to be called as witnesses as well to speak to this, to this issue. They might be called to make a show of the fact that they are asserting their Fifth Amendment rights. So they may have to say their name. They may have to answer and assert their Fifth Amendment rights for 25 questions. But are they going to uh, talk? No. And that's why the big win on behalf of counsel for those defendants was getting their trial afterward because they knew Chauvin was the albatross. So their trials come later. They can incriminate themselves if they testify. It's not going to happen. And I want to make one other, I want to ask you one other quick question on this because I don't know the answer to it. But do we or are we aware that if in any of those other officer statements, they discuss Chauvin's tactics? If, if he should have done that, if they were concerned, do any of them raise these ideas of what their perspective was of what Chauvin was doing? Again, this, is, this question is obviously based, again, that reasonable officer is going to be such an important, might be the thing the whole trial turns on, one way or the other. So I may or may not regularly do advice and counsel in my crisis management lane for family attorney Benjamin Crump, and I may or may not have information that I cannot share. But what I will say is everybody lawyered up really quickly. And so, and I, and I raised that point because when colleagues um, of mine at the Washington Post did a look at how rarely officers were charged and then how much more rarely they're convicted, one of the triggers that results in a conviction is when other officers at the scene say that guy didn't need to do that. Right. Because as you noted, it undermines the reasonable, if, if another officer on the record goes, he didn't need to do that, it speaks directly to the core of what the legal burden of proof is. But are we going to so, get that? So all I was thinking today was who's going to be the weakest link? Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear are you. Aren't we going to get that from the police chief? No. No. Um, if they, I, I doubt that they signed any documents. I won't speak out of turn. I think that everybody knew something really bad happened. They called their union, mm -hmm. the union got them lawyers. They didn't submit their reports like they were supposed to. They're given this window of time before they have to be questioned. By the time they were questioned, they had lawyers. But the squeeze that I was thinking about today is all this bad testimony rolled out for them was which of those other cats is like, let me go on, go ahead and do this plea and sing like a canary because that's the other action that's happening while we're in this trial. There's plea negotiations going on between prosecution and Chauvin. There's plea negotiations with the other defendants. And if I was one of those other two defendants lawyer, I'd be talking to my client and saying, listen here, listen here. Um, here's your one opportunity. You may not have a get out of jail free card, but you have a don't stay in jail as long card if you play it right now and agree to cooperate. So we that can still happen. That's, that's right. And that's why the judge and oh, and because this is the time because there's no reason to do that before trial based on what you know, you look at the way it rolls out and the way it's rolling out right now is bad. So 
at the half at the halftime show at the halfway mark that's why the judge said we'll see friday we'll see tonight the judge said we'll see if there's any more motions i think he's halfway waiting for 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 somebody to just roll <laughs> well and that and that also and that also raises i keep saying one more but that also raises the prospect chauvin could change his plea and didn't he want a plea initially and the the department of justice didn't approve it, it because because you know waiving federal charges would have been part of the plea deal. Didn't he want to accept a plea? My, what I heard is that he wanted that, but he also wanted a guarantee of no jail time. Well, that was so, yeah. nope. I want a lot of shit too that yes. I'm not gonna get. <laughs> I mean, yes, I want to return to when Santa Claus came for me, and I didn't have to do it for my children. Everybody wants something. Mm. Well, Monique. This has been so valuable. We, we really appreciate it. This has been such a great conversation. Um, and, and just frankly, a good space <laughs> to just all kind of talk and, and work through all of this together. You know, it's difficult to watch this trial day in and day out, uh, yeah. to watch the people re-traumatize themselves, to be, think, to be watching the videos and the things ourselves, finding out new details that in some ways are even more upsetting than the ones we already knew. <laughs> Um, yes. And so it was just so powerful to have you break down the law here, because what we also know is it's a complicated legal system that gets even more complicated when police officers are involved. And so your expertise is just so crucial. Thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. And I would urge your listeners to keep posting on social media and doing what they do, because the court of public opinion, figment or real, is a thing. Uh, and we have voices. We have power. Thank you, Monique. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so if you could please drop yourself off, because again, I don't know how to disconnect people. Thank you so much. We will post this. Um, <laughs> thank you, Monique. Uh, All right. Uh, thank you guys. Don't go anywhere because we have to I'm redo the top. Going. I'm right here. Right. You, I don't know. You two are quick to, to flee. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. Yeah, I got evening plans, uh, you know. Um, so yeah, there yeah, was I got, I, I got more meetings. <laughs> right, right. So this is the fun part of your night. Is that what you're saying? This this is this yeah, is the fun part of my night. <laughs> life is life is over in five minutes. Soon as we um, soon we as we had a, we had a freeze at the top, so we're just going to redo the whole top, just the intro. Okay. And then mm -hmm. Wesley, if you could intro um, Tremaine. Monique again or, or Tremaine again? No, no. Who who intro Tremaine? It was you, right? Wes did. No. Yes, I did. Wes Tremaine. brought in Tremaine, and I brought in Monique. So Wes, I think, did the first question to Tremaine. I, I did the first question, but I think you intro. Okay, yes, I intro him. You, you oh, coming okay. out of your, so you you can just run through it. Yeah, so I'll do the full first did, intro. Yep, and then we'll. And then uh, intro, could, and then intro Tremaine. Yep. Yeah. Okay. In three, two. Welcome to Run Tell This and BET Presents Justice for George Floyd. This is a series of special video episodes of the Run Tell This podcast. If you're new to Run Tell This, we are a group of Black journalists and longtime friends. I am Mara Scavocampo, joined by Wesley Lowry and Keith Reed, and we get together each week to talk about news and social justice. And we are doing a series on the Chauvin trial of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so we're going to start now talking about what we've seen over the last few days, the witnesses that we've seen over the last few days. And one thing that has been common among them is this emotional outpouring that we've seen, this witnessing of trauma and re-traumatization, especially among Black witnesses. So joining us now to break all this down is Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. Tremaine, welcome. All right, and then Wes, if you can just do that first question. Oh, yes, I can do that. 
Let me look at that. <laughs> I think we're fine, Susan. Are we okay with the first question? We just froze at the top. Yeah. I want to make sure we have what we need. Yeah, I, I'd love to get a second take just in case, but I think we're okay. Right. I was more concerned about your open because it froze okay. literally on your first line. Okay. Yep. So give me give me a second. Um, tell me when you, you guys ready. Anytime. So Tremaine, thank you so much for being here with us. And for those who don't know, Tremaine Lee is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has been one of the lead reporters. He was one of the first reporters on the Trayvon Martin case and has been on the ground in essentially every city that has seen this play out in the last decade. And Tremaine, like me and Keith, is a black man. And, and I wanted to ask you, Tremaine, about the poignant, powerful testimony that we saw from Charles McMillan, who, who broke down in tears on the stand after watching the video. The testimony we saw from Donald Williams, the MMA fighter, um, he broke down as he was listening to the 911 call that he made calling the police on the police. That time and time again, we've watched witnesses and, and black men expressing their heartbreak about their inability to do more to help George Floyd. We've seen black women express their heartbreak about their inability to do more to help George Floyd. And the, the question I have for you is, are we, through this process, re-traumatizing these witnesses who have to talk about these clearly painful experiences and things they saw? Are we re-traumatizing ourselves? And what do we make of this cycle of traumatization and re-traumatization? Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Runtell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.